morning. It's a privilege for me to be here this morning. It's an honor to preach here in Kentucky, in Somerset. It's the first time I think that actually I'm preaching here in the States. So be super gracious with me. Usually I preach in German, so if you don't understand my accent, it's your fault. <laughs> it's actually an honor to be here this morning. Um, Pastor Bill said that he was five months ago in my church in Germany, Emmanuel Church in Wetzlar, that's close to Frankfurt, and we really enjoyed listening to his sermon. And they sent warm greetings to you all. Uh, they met up today, I think six hours ago, like six hours ahead, and they have been praying for us as we gather together again here. Today is the first Sunday in 2019. The first Sunday, and I hope you had a good start, a fresh start to this new year. And usually at the beginning of the year, we make new resolutions. Maybe some of us start going to the gym. And maybe some of us have been successful keeping the resolutions for the first week. Congratulations. But I think some of us already threw them overboard because we couldn't keep them. A new year is a special time to think about our lives, to reflect, rec- reflect about our priorities, what's important for us, what we want to do with our lives. But oftentimes, throughout the year, we just get stuck up in our daily routines and in our busyness in our lives. And oftentimes, in the busyness in our lives, we wonder whether what we do actually makes sense. What we spend our time on makes sense. Whether our lives, at the end, makes a difference at all. And if you're a Christian, maybe you wonder whether it makes sense to live for God. Especially in times when we feel that we don't see any fruit from our ministry. We think, does it actually make sense to live for our God? I don't see any fruit. Maybe you shared the gospel with one of your friends, one of your classmates, one of your family members for years, but you don't see any fruit. You tried even to be friendly to your neighbor, what's usually hard for you, but you still see no fruit at all. And so you wonder whether it makes sense to live for God. Following Christ is sometimes hard. Sometimes we face difficulties, We face challenges, and so we wonder whether it makes sense to live for God. Today we want to look at a passage from the Old Testament, from the book Haggai. The prophet Haggai is a small prophet in the Old Testament. And we want to read chapter 2, Haggai chapter 2, verse 1 to 9. In this passage we see that Israel started to feel discouraged. They started to rebuild the temple, and then soon after they started working on that temple, they feel discouraged, and they want to give up. They think living for God, serving God is just pointless, and so they just want to give up. My prayer for you and for me today is that if you face challenges this year, if you face disappointments, hardships in our lives, in our ministry for God, that we see that it makes sense to live for our glorious God. So let us read Haggai chapter 2, starting verse 1. 
This is the word of God. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the, of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake the nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. It's no secret that we as Christians, as believers, will face difficulties, discouragements. I don't think that's a secret. Like Israel, we'll face times where we think it doesn't make any sense to continue to work for God, to keep working and serving God. But this is not just true for full-time pastors or missionaries on the mission field, but this is true for every believer, that you will face difficult times in your walk with the Lord. And this morning, I want us to see three things from the text about living for God and discouragements. And the first thing is live for God even when it feels pointless. You see that in the first three verses. I want you to give some background. In the text, we are in Jerusalem 520 before Christ. Jerusalem used to be a splendid city. There was the palace of the king. There was a wall around the city. And there was a temple, a manifestation of God's glory among his people. And the temple, the wall, and the palace, everything is broken down. Everything is destroyed. It happened 586 when the Babylonians came to Israel and destroyed everything and they exiled some of the Israelites. And now Israel is back in Israel, in Jerusalem, for 16 years, but still, the temple is just a pile of stones. Nothing happened so far. They came back and they started building the temple, but then they just gave up because it was too hard. In Ezra 5, we read that through the prophet Haggai and Zechariah and then Zerubbabel and Joshua, all of them mobilized the people to start building the temple again to pick up the work and complete the work of the temple. 
And the prophet Haggai is a very small prophet. We just have two chapters. And it contains four sermons Haggai gives to his people just to kind of mobilize them to start building the temple again. And Haggai, the prophet, preached over the time span of three and a half months. And in his first sermon in chapter 1, he basically told them that they have to set their, their priorities right. And God told them, my house has been devastated for a long time. And you, you live in beautiful houses. And my house is not existing. It's just a pile of stones. And so God wants to make clear that his house is his priority. You might wonder whether it's important for God to have a beautiful church building. But it's not about the church building. It's not about the temple as a building, but it's what the temple stands for. The temple is a symbol of God's glory among his people. And so what God basically is saying through Haggai in the first sermon is, you're missing out the greatest blessing you can imagine. I want to live among you. I want to be your God, but you don't want me to live among you. And so Israel started picking up the work after the first sermon in chapter 1. And six weeks later, in chapter 2, they already feel discouraged. It's the end of October. If you, if you read in verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month. That's the end of October. And it was the Feast of the Tabernacle. What was the Feast of the Tabernacle? Basically, Israel camped for a whole week in tents. And if you like camping, that would be probably your favorite holiday. They camped for a whole week in these tents. And they didn't do it just because they liked camping. Like, I think Americans like camping. But they didn't do that because they liked it, because they wanted to remember that God protected them in the wilderness, in the desert. For 40 years, they lived in tents, and God camped among them, and so they were remembered, or should remember, that God protected them. He provided what they needed for 40 years, and even after they came to the promised land. But also another big event happened on that day. 440 years ago, on that day, the temple was finished, the first temple. And so imagine how Israel feels on that holiday. They're standing at this pile of stones. They think about how God promised that one day they will be in the promised land, will have a temple, not just a tabernacle. And then they also think about that 440 years ago on that day, the first temple was finished, this glorious temple which Solomon finished. And the, the whole situation just presses them down. And so Haggai asked them in verse 3, Who is left among you? Who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Why are the Israelites discouraged? First, they think that the old temple was so much better than the temple they're building right now. The old temple had gold, had, had wood from Lebanon. But this temple was built from trees from the neighborhood. And it wouldn't be that big like the old temple. 
And secondly, they think that what they're working right now doesn't make any sense. They will never finish this project. And some of the older generation, maybe over 70 years old, they can remember how they went to the old temple with their parents and saw the gold in this big building, 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Solomon decorated the temple with cedar wood and gold. And I think about these good old times when the old temple was still there. But also the people who never have been to the old temple, the younger generation, they heard all these stories about the gold from the old temple, how shiny this old gold was. And so they think it doesn't make any sense to work if we can't build a temple like the old one. This is just a pitiful try to rebuild the temple, they think. In the first three weeks of this project, they probably just thought, how should we build a temple? So probably they have been working for just three weeks. Just three weeks. And in these three weeks, probably, they couldn't have finished a lot. They just realized the lack in so many ways. Maybe the lack of skilled workers. The lack of money. A lot of people just left hands. They couldn't work. And then, think about that. What was in the center of the old temple? The Ark of the Covenant. Where is the Ark of the Covenant? They don't have the Ark of the Covenant, the center of the temple. And now they should build a temple without the Ark of the Covenant. I'm pretty sure that most of us know the feeling of Israel pretty well. Filled times... It doesn't make any sense to keep working, to keep serving God. What is the point of my life? What is the point of my ministry? I don't see any fruits. I don't see that people come to faith. Maybe you have to think about this classmate, this neighbor, this friend. You told him about Jesus so often. You explained to him the gospel. But nothing happened. You prayed for your child to come to faith, nothing happened. Honestly, as a pastor in Germany, oftentimes I feel like that. You share the gospel with people, and our churches are usually very small. You share the gospel with people and pour so much energy and time into people's lives, and then nothing happens. I really have to think about this one man who started coming to our church. He had a really tough life. And he was so interested in Christianity and in the gospel, and he made a decision for Christ, but soon after he just stopped coming without any reason. And I'm pretty sure that this happens also in the States, not just in Germany, where we feel that everything what we do is just in vain. It doesn't make any sense. And then as Christians in a secular society, it's really hard. Christianity is decreasing, where people don't want to listen to what we are saying about Christ. And we think sometimes it would be great living in the time of the Reformation. It would be great living in a time of an awakening, where people just heard the name Jesus and they came to faith. But the 21st century in the West is so hard sometimes, we think. It's so challenging. 
Let's see what Haggai has to say for people who are discouraged. Be strong, work, fear not. That's what Haggai says. Why should they be strong and work and not fear? You see that in verse 4 and verse 6. In verse 4, he says, Yet not be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people. Work, for I'm with you. And then in verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while. Do you see these two little words? Yet and for. In both verses. Yet and for. Yet you are facing challenges. Yet it's hard to serve God. Yet it's hard to walk with God. It's not easy. But keep working. And then Haggai gives the reason. For. With the two fours, he introduces the reasons why we should keep working. Well, it still makes sense for God that we live for him. That we don't give up, even when it's hard. And the first reason is live for God because he promises to be with you. In verse 4 and verse 5. Live for God because he promises to be with you. Maybe if you hear that, it doesn't make any sense. What is the encouragement? Live for God because he promises to be with you. What exactly is the encouragement? It makes sense to live for God because he promises to be with you. He promises to, be, to help you. And he promises to give you strength to do the work he gave you to do. And then for the first time again, God is called the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. The God who has all power. So the God who gives you a command, who gives you instructions to live for him, he's also the God who is in charge for everything. He's the God who has all power. So in times when it's hard just to be remembered that the God who is with you is the God who created heaven and earth. He is the God of all power. And then we see this kind of it's almost a chorus in the Bible. I'll be with you. We find that in so many places in the Bible. I'll be with you. If you think about Joshua, right before he entered the land, God told him, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you whenever you go. And then King David told to his, said to his son Solomon, be strong and courageous, and do it. Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord God is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. When we look at this promise, God is with us. God is with his people. It's so closely tied to the covenant God made with his people. Look at verse 5. According to the covenant he made with them when he saved them from Egypt. God reminds him that he is with them because he made a covenant with them. He's with them because he saved them. And so when he saved them, he made a covenant with them. 
which includes that he will never forsake them. He will never leave them alone. It's not like God tells the people here, after you've finished building the temple, then I will come to the temple, and then I will be with you. No, God tells his people, as you start working on that temple, I will be with you. Not after you finish the temple, but all the time, as you serve, as you walk with me, I will be with you. It's not about the temple, but it's about God who wants to live among his people. And this is the greatest blessing we as Christians, we as believers have. That God is with us. That the creator of the universe promises to be with you. The temple is not that important. It's just pointing to a greater reality that God wants to live among his people. And then he says, my spirit remains among you. And that's true also for us Christians. That God gives us his spirit and his spirit lives in us. How does that apply to us? When we think about the Great Commission, right before Christ resurrected, Jesus uses the same words, Haggai, uses here. It's the same, basically the same promise. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And now the command, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And now, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Do you see that? Jesus doesn't give us just something hard, what we can't fulfill. He doesn't say, just make disciples. It's your job, and then I will be with you. Then I will bless you. No, he says, as you make disciples, I will be with you. As you do what I called you to do, I will be with you, and I'm the Lord who has all power and all authority. And so what I gave you to do, what I called you to do, will happen because I have all power. That's what Jesus says to us. I think that's a very important principle we have to learn as Christians. It's not about our ministry, but it's about our relationship to Christ, to God. I think oftentimes we just get caught up in the busyness of ministry, serving God, doing different things in church, which are great, but then we forget about our Savior. I want to illustrate that with a short example. I had a roommate in college, and he was one of these super strong men. He loved boxing. He would work out all the time. He never took a break. Actually, oftentimes in the morning, he would come in my room and start boxing. It was really tough for me. It's one of my toughest times in life, probably. But one day, he discovered walking as a new hobby. From one day to the next, he loved walking. He went for long walks. And he would, if I would ask him, what are you doing tonight? He would say, I'm going to go on a walk. 
And I had no idea what was happening. But then I realized that he loved walking because he started dating. And so he would love to go on long, extremely long walks with his new girlfriend. And it wasn't about walking because he hated walking. He would, leave a, he would rather be in the gym or just boxing or something else. But he went for long walks with his new girlfriend. Not because he loved walking, but he wanted to get to know his new girlfriend. I think oftentimes we as Christians concentrate too much on walking. We're just so stuck up in just serving God and are caught in our ministry and so much focused just on the ministry and forget that our walk with God is about God, not about walking. And so what we see here is that if we serve God, if we live for God, it's not about just serving or ministry, but it's about the God who we serve, the God who we live for. So I want to ask you, if you think about your walk with the Lord, your ministry, whether it's Sunday school, maybe it's in the nursery, maybe it's here in the music team, or something else, what motivates you? Is it duty? Is it fear? Or is it the joy about the God who saved you? The God who gave his only son for you. The God who died on the cross for you to atone your sins. It's a privilege and a joy to walk and to serve for God. But don't concentrate just on walking. Concentrate on the Lord you're serving, you're walking with. The last thing we learn here is live for God because his plans are greater than yours. We see that in, the verse, in verses 6 to 9. In the scripture reading, maybe you have noticed that oftentimes we find this phrase, God speaks, the Lord of hosts declares or speaks. It's almost annoying that the text repeats that all the time. For example, we see that here in verse 8 and 9. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And then the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Why does the text repeat that all the time that God is speaking? I think it would be enough if it just says God speaks and then we have what God speaks and then ends. But the text wants to draw our attention that God is actually speaking. The Israelites just see what's right in front of their nose. They see this pile of stones. And what do they see? Nothing. They just see the piles of stones, the old ruins of the old temple, and they see absolutely nothing. But then when God speaks and looks at this pile of stones it makes such a big difference because God will make out of these stones a big temple. And to make sure that Israel doesn't look just with their eyes on these pile of stones, God wants to make sure that he is speaking and his perspective is totally different. One day, 
God will make a temple out of these stones. And he will finish that temple. And even when we face situations where we think it's pointless, I just see a pile of stones. God looks very differently on these pile of stones. Two friends and I once got lost while we were hiking in the Appalachians. It was an adventure for us as Germans. We are three Germans. And we got lost in these hilly mountains. I think it's over 1,500 miles from Canada down to Alabama. And we got lost there. And at the beginning, we started joking about we would die here, and then the newspaper would write something like three Germans died in the Appalachians or something. But we also didn't bring any snacks. Or I think we just had a bottle of water or something. But then when the sun started getting down, all of us get, got a little nervous. We had no idea how to get out of that forest. We didn't know what to do. And so what we did, we just climbed uphill on the top of one of the mountains. And on top of the mountains, we could see the pass we went. And so we see the whole forest and we just have a very different perspective. We just got lost in the forest, but standing on the top of the hill just helped us finding our way back. And I think that's exactly what Haggai does. He gives us a different perspective on the whole situation. In German, we have an idiom. I don't know whether it works in English, but it's something like, you can't see the forest because of the tree. Basically, you are so focused on details, on the tree, that you have no idea what the big picture is. And Haggai gives us the big picture. He gives us God's perspective on the whole situation. For Israel, it was maybe like they couldn't see the temple because of the stones. They just saw the stones. But God was about to fulfill his promises. And if if we see, if you look at the last verses, we see what God promises, what God's glorious plan was. God will shake heaven and earth. That's a phrase that's often used when God enters the stage at Mount Sinai. It points to a very unique event when God would come to the world. He will shake the nations, and as a result, they would come to the temple. And then the latter glory of the house, of the temple, would be greater than the former. And then through that, God would give peace. What is he talking about? What is he talking about? It's maybe a little bit confusing and complicated, but the easiest way to find out what he's talking about, we just turn to the New Testament. And then in Hebrews 12, we see how verse 6 and the plan and the promise there are fulfilled. In Hebrews 12, verse 27, the writer quotes verse 6, and he says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. 
So knowing about Christ's first and second coming should lead us to live for an unshakable kingdom. If we know about Christ's first coming and about the promise of his second coming, we should live for him, for this kingdom. But what about the temple? What about the temple? We read in verse 9, the glory of this house shall be greater than the former. When would that happen? This temple, Haggai and the Israelites were working on, would be finished in three and a half years. But this temple wasn't greater. It was smaller. It was nothing compared to the old temple. And then later, King Herod extended the temple. He made the temple a bit bigger. But then still, 70 after Christ, this temple was destroyed. So when would this promise be fulfilled? Maybe you know the story in John 2, where Jesus is right next to this extended temple of King Herod. And he points to the temple, or standing right next to the temple, and says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? And then Jesus answered, that it is him. And John comments, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In the Old Testament, God gets in touch with his people, with people like you and me, sinful people through the temple and all the sacrifices. But you know what? In the New Testament, we don't need that temple. We don't need sacrifice because Christ is the temple. He is the sacrifice. He is the place where God shows his glory. When Jesus came to this world, when he became human, God himself dwelt among sinful people, sinful human beings like you and me. But there was no point in history when God's glory was shown in a bigger way than when Christ became human, when he dwelt among us. And Christ died, but he also rose from the dead. And it's not a building, but it's Christ himself who is this greater and bigger temple. And the church is God's temple too, because we belong to Christ. And so united to Christ and put together as living stones the church with Christ, the temple which should represent God's glory. And so we live after Christ's first coming as Christians. Some of God's promises to Haggai already are fulfilled. We're still waiting for Christ's second coming. In the meantime, we're basically in the same situation like the people, people of Israel. We are waiting. We don't know everything. But what we know is that God has a great plan, an amazing plan. And what we do in the meantime is serving him, making his glory known to people in our neighborhood, people in our nation, 
and also globally. And we're waiting for that one day when we will be in Christ's and God the Father's and the Holy Spirit's presence, and there will be no temple anymore. Read in Revelation at the end that there will be no temple, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Can you imagine how glorious that day will be? When we'll be in God's presence, we don't need any sacrifice anymore. We don't need a building anymore because we are right in God's presence. And so that means for you and me, we have to keep in mind this glorious plan as we serve God day by day. That we don't get lost in our busyness, in our hardships, but we think about God's glorious plan and we are part of this glorious and amazing plan. For the Israelites, it was hard serving God even when they thought it doesn't make any sense. And the same for us. Oftentimes, even this year, you will face situations where you think, I just want to give up. I don't want to do that anymore. Sunday school is hard. But then think about God's glorious plan and that you can be part of that if you serve him. One sociologist called our society an instant society. We just want everything right now. We can't wait. Oftentimes, if we want to watch a YouTube clip, we can't wait. I mean, some of us maybe remember the times when we had this slow modem. But I think in our culture and society, we just hate waiting for things. But as Christians, we are called to wait. We are called to wait for God. And oftentimes, maybe in this life, we don't see any fruits from our ministry. It's great if we see fruits from our ministry when people come to faith. But oftentimes, it's going to be that we serve God faithfully, but we don't see any fruits. But still, we're encouraged to do that, even in 2019, because we know that God promised to be with you. But he also promised that he will fulfill his glorious plan. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he became human. He dwelt among us to show us your glory. We thank you for the grace and the great salvation we have in him. And Father, we pray as we face difficulties, even in 2019, that we don't feel discouraged, but are every day newly encouraged by the promise that you'll be with us with your spirit. And that we, as we serve you, as we live for you, our glorious creator, redeemer, and king, that you will fulfill your promises in our lives and also in the whole world. We thank you so much also for knowing that we are, as Christians in the whole world, one body. And I thank you so much for Grace Baptist here in Somerset. I thank you for the ministries they have 
here in town, but also globally. And I just pray that even this year, as they will face difficult times, discouragements in these ministries, that you'll remind them of your great promises. Amen. Thank you, dear brother. What a great reminder that